2: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, we take a curious journey through our cosmic family tree with astrophysicist Dr Gillian Scudder and her book, Astroquizzical. Julian Scudder is an astrophysicist and an assistant professor at Oberlin College, Ohio. She has been writing Astroquizzical, a blog answering space-related questions from the public, for over five years. Her writing has also been published in Forbes, Quartz, Medium, and The Conversation, and now Astroquizzical is a book. And Julian takes a curious journey through our cosmic family tree in it. Julian, welcome to Little Athens. Thank you. Tell me how the blog started, first of all.
3: Oh, the blog started because I was extremely annoyed at writing only science papers. I had done a liberal arts degree as an undergraduate, which in the US is one of these degrees that lets you not specialize. So I had done a physics with astronomy emphasis degree and I had done a French degree, which is not so doable in the UK, but there's lots of these sort of small colleges in the States and so I had done one of those and so I had gotten used to writing a lot. And then I went off to grad school for astronomy And about a year into it, or two years into it, I was sitting there going, I cannot stand another sentence in the passive voice. I am going to go completely out of my mind. And so I was already kind of ruminating over, well, I should start writing something. I don't know what to write. Lots of people are already writing about space and all this stuff, and I don't know what I'm going to do. So. In this period of time where I was grumbling and ruminating and all this stuff, the college where I did my degree did this outreach event in one evening. And so they said, right, well, we're going to get everyone to come in and talk about the research to the general public, and we'll just open it up. And so there was a whole series of talks and demos and stuff that was related to what people were researching. And I was feeling lazy at the time and didn't want to or didn't have time to make a research talk on what I was doing. So I went, right, well, the easy thing to do here is to just set up a booth which is me at a table and I'll put up a sign that says ask the astronomer and I'll probably have loads of spare time and it'll be great and easy. So it was a three-hour event. I had 20 minutes of downtime right at the start and then nothing for the rest of the evening. And so I was just completely full of people going, oh, I saw this thing. What was it? It's like, okay, let's play 20 questions. I don't know what it was. Could you touch it? Could you feel it? Could you smell it? Um, Or, you know, oh, I heard this thing and I don't understand it. What does it mean? Okay. And so I came home after that three-hour jaunt of brain bendingness and basically went, well, Maybe I can just open up a blog for questions and see what happens. So that's sort of how the blog started. I basically started a Tumblr, which I figured was the easiest way to have some minor discoverability with no PR press or anything. set up an anonymous question box, answered a question that I had answered in that evening, and then just crossed my fingers, hoped for the best, and went to see where it went. And so I was fully convinced it was going to die in like six months. And I have been doing it for five years.
2: So how did the book come out of that then? Uh,
3: The book came out because after three years of writing, I had was staring at the blog and going, I've pretty much written a book. I feel like maybe it should be a book. And so I talked to a whole bunch of people that I had sort of either been talking to along the way. So author friends of mine and A couple of other people that were more book-related and less blog-related and sort of fielded the idea to them. And it seemed like, yeah, it would work as a book. Uh, And then I basically tried to talk to some people I knew who had published and see if there were any recommendations for who to work with. And one of those people very kindly pointed me towards Icon. Uh, I said, well, they do nonfiction. They're open for pitches. They're good people. So try pitching to them. And so uh, after a few rounds of uh, how can we reshape a blog into a book and hook it into what kind of framework, we all said, yeah, I think we can do it as a family tree. Uh, And then I spent an entire summer rewriting everything I had written twice over, and now it's much better.
2: (laughs) Can I say, I really like the design as well. It's got a really great cover. It looks like a sort of one of those Carl Sagan books from the 1970s. Yeah, it's a bit retro, isn't it? So what what do you want to do with this book? Who is it aimed at, I guess?
3: So it's aimed at people who haven't had much in the way of a science background, but who are interested in or curious about outer space generally. So it doesn't assume much Background knowledge, but we take kind of a weird journey through bits of outer space that don't often get covered in introductory space books. So it's sort of the whimsy version of your basic astronomy book. The book takes
2: a gradual journey from the Earth outward.
3: Yes, um, and so it starts off from
2: the, the human perspective looking out at the stars. So let's talk about that. What are some of the challenges that we face being Earthbound astronomers? At looking outwards?
3: Um, Well, the biggest right now is light pollution. So if you live in a big city, chances are you have never seen the Milky Way. If you live even in a small city, chances are you have never seen the Milky Way. So the the pollution by artificial lighting is the biggest impediment. So if you want to be uh, a telescope somewhere on Earth, uh, you want to put it very far away from city lights. Just because you want your sky to be as dark as possible. So that's one big uh, impediment. The other big impediment is just the atmosphere is kind of a problem. There are certain frequencies of light that fortunately for life don't make it through the atmosphere. But unfortunately for science at that frequency, you can't see through the atmosphere there. That can be a problem. Even just fundamentally, the atmosphere will make all the stars dance. And if you want them to be nicely focused, that can be an issue.
2: The book also contains, as we go along, certain thought experiments. Yes. Um, and the first one in this section talks about how we know the, obviously, light travels at the speed of light, and we know looking up at the stars up in the sky that some of them are many light years away, and therefore we're looking at them in the past, Yes. basically. Um, so to turn that on its head, would it be possible if we could somehow put a big telescope light years out in space to look back at Earth's
3: history? Yes, yeah, that was a fun one because I get lots of these questions where I sort of, what if? Well, could we? If it were possible, what, what could we do? Uh, and that one was interesting because geometrically possible. If there was a mirror out there and light bounced off of the earth and went out to that mirror and reflected off of it and came back to us, yes, possible. In practice, impossible. One, because there's no mirror. But two, because the earth is not a laser so we can bounce laser light off the moon and see it come back because we know exactly what color that laser light was when it left but the earth reflects all sorts of colors so differentiating this was earth light when it left the earth and now it's back from just any other light that might be coming back to us is really really tricky
2: we're going to move on to the moon so you just mentioned this idea of firing a laser at the moon and we do that why
3: uh, it's partially to, well, I think it's primarily to just uh, get a very accurate measure of the distance between us and the moon so we can track how quickly it's receding away from the earth. Also, it's just fun. Yeah, <laughs> You can bounce a laser off the moon and you can see it come back. But the moon is receding away
2: from the earth. Yes. That's the key takeaway. You
3: very, about. very slightly every year.
2: Um, let's talk about how the moon, how did the moon become the moon?
3: Well, that is still up for some debate. Uh, the best theory so far is that you take an object about the size of Mars and you smash it into a very early Earth, and you create a huge amount of wreckage out of what used to be a proto-Earth and what used to be a object sort of Mars-sized. What happens at that point uh, becomes kind of hazy. So the traditional version of this theory goes that it destroyed the outer crust of the proto-Earth. And the core of the incoming object and the core of the proto-Earth sunk together. And then the crust got flung out into this ring of molten rock and dust and gunk. And that then coalesced back into what we now know as the moon.
2: And we know this because the moon has rock on it that's like rock on Earth.
3: Yeah, very, very similar to rock on Earth. So the only real way to explain that is if they were once part of the same object. There are slight differences, though, and so that's part of the tricky part. So the question is, was it really just a haze of molten rock, or did it vaporize some of the surface of the proto-Earth? And in that vaporization, did certain things happen?
2: Because yeah, the, the question that throws up is, where's all the rock from this Mars-like object that actually hit into it? If the moon is made of rock that's the same as the Earth, where mm-hmm. did all the other stuff go?
3: So this is one of the, if you, if you vaporize the rock, then you can sort of fix that problem, because then you expect that the two might have mixed a little bit more thoroughly before the moon condensed back down so it's a yeah thinking about that is really fun because you just don't think about these kind of destructive catastrophic collisions happening because they don't anymore this is stuff that only happens very early in the life of the of our early solar system
2: you just raised something that comes up later on and like, like I named this idea of the you know planetesimals and clouds around a sun that gradually coalesce together and then gravity pulls them together and they eventually form into a planet. And I've often wondered how did that planet end up as a ball that if the, if it's mm. made up of these bits of rocks. Of course, it never even occurred to me until I read it in your book that, of course, most of this stuff is probably soft.
3: Yeah, it's quite hot. The early solar system is still cooling down. So, yeah, you have these kind of... I think of them as kind of tacky balls of molten rock. So you think of um, glass as quite a solid object, but if you heat it up, you get this taffy-like substance. And so if you heat rock up, it can behave the same way. You get lava that has this taffy-like appearance. And so if you smack two balls of really molten rock together, they're going to stick rather than shatter. So, yeah, they're really hot in the young solar system. And so the sticking together process is much easier than you can think of it now. Like if you ran two planets into each other now, you would still get that because the cores are molten. But it would be much more catastrophic than in the very young solar system where you're just really flinging hot pool balls at each other.
2: Staying with the moon for a moment. When we look up at the moon, we're seeing one face of the moon and people will have heard of the, you know, the dark side of the moon from either NASA photographs of it from the Apollo missions or from Pink Floyd or whatever. So why do we only see that one side?
3: Well, I'm going to have to correct your language a little bit because it's not the dark side, it's the far side.
2: Blame Pink Floyd, not me.
3: Uh, I, can, I can blame Pink Floyd, he's an artist. But yeah, the, the far side of the moon is illuminated just as much as the near side of the moon. But we miss it because the moon is in a very special configuration with the Earth. So as the moon rotates around the Earth, it is very slightly turning so that its one side is always facing the Earth, which rotates much faster in the middle of this. So the combination of this slow revolution around its own axis and this long orbit around the Earth means that we only see this near side of the moon ever. It does wiggle a little bit right around the edges. You can sometimes see something that isn't always present. But uh, for the most part, we're only going to see the one side because its rotation is locked in with its orbit. So it's a, a situation called tidal locking. And it happens not just with our moon, but with many other moons of other objects in our solar system.
2: There's another thought experiment in this section Mm. about the moon as well, which I'll get you to explain in detail. But basically, could we somehow, if there was some way of a wormhole between the Earth and the moon, could we basically somehow step through a door from a room on the Earth onto the moon's surface? What would happen if that... Yeah. Situation somehow arose.
3: <laughs> yes. These are the uh, the what-if questions that I enjoy the most. Yeah, that question led to some of my most government-worrying-inducing search history. Because I was sitting there going, what's the tensile strength of, uh, of the average human? Uh, what's the grip strength of an average, <laughs> uh, an average person? Uh, and all these other really dodgy-looking search histories... Because I was trying to figure out what in the face of a very strong wind, how much could a person resist? And what kind of damage would a very strong wind do to the human body? Because we're really quite delicate creatures. And if you open a window from one atmosphere to no atmospheres, what you get is a really, really fast wind on par with the fastest winds in the solar system. Which we. This is
2: basically all the air from the earth going through the windows. Very fast,
3: yes. So we're not equipped for this. So if you were standing in this gateway, even holding on to something, what would happen? And the answer is many, many bad things would happen because our bodies are very fragile. (laughs) So we would be
2: blown through this window? Yes. Then what?
3: Then you would continue for quite some time, uh, assuming that you were instantly accelerated to the speed of the wind, but you would come back. So if someone shut the window after you left, you would eventually fall back down to hit the surface of the moon at the same speed you left. So you would have a very bad day.
2: Okay, we'll move us on to the solar system, our, our own solar system. And this is a uh, probably the largest section of the book. So there's a few things I want to talk about in this one. Sure. And um, we sort of touched on it a moment ago, but let's talk again about what makes up a planet. How how did those planets get there?
3: So when you try and make a star, you will take the majority of the gas that is around and put it into that star. But in the process, you will miss a good chunk of other gas and dust that isn't quite far enough into the centre to fall and make the star. So around your very young star, you have this gas and dust In a disk that's also rotating with the little new star. And it will also cool and collapse down, but uh, it's not going to make another star. There's not enough material left over. So what you have is a series of small lumpy bits that start to form, and given enough time and enough lumpy bits, you're going to build planets. So the further out you are, the more you can keep things that we normally consider as gas, which is where we get our gas giants from. Closer in you go, that gas starts to evaporate and you wind up with rockier planets.
2: Okay, well, trick question, you see, because they asked you what made a planet. Mm. But what I want to really talk about is there are three rules that have been put down ah. by the International Astronomical Union. Yes. I think it seems in in um, embarrassment at all of the fuss about Pluto, but we'll come to Pluto in a moment. <laughs> but what are the three things that we now say, these are the qualities that you have to have if you would like to be described as a planet?
3: Right. So you have to orbit the sun and not another object. So this rules out moons. You have to be round Uh, which means that you have to be sufficiently massive to be round. And the third one, uh, which is where Pluto gets disqualified, is that you have to have cleared your orbit of other similar-sized objects. So if you have a particular orbit, and along that orbit are things that are bigger or of the same size as you, then that's not considered a cleared orbit, and so you fail on that last criterion.
2: Let's just look at that second one for a moment as well. So when you say you have to be round, people always think... Well, of course, but there are obviously asteroids, comets, some moons that aren't strictly round.
3: Yeah, so comets and asteroids do orbit the sun, so they would pass that first criterion, but uh, because they're not round, which means they're not massive enough to be round, they would fail out on the second criteria. Most of the asteroids would fail on the third one as well because the whole asteroid belt is full of other similarly sized objects. But it takes care of objects like Ceres, which is in the main asteroid belt, is round, but Ceres has other similarly sized objects in its orbit because the whole asteroid belt is there. So it's not a planet either.
2: So let's talk about Pluto then. So Pluto, it also, not only does it have this, you know, there are other things somewhere in its orbit for it to cross, it also has a weirder orbit than all the other planets.
3: It does. Yeah, everything else is pretty much in two-dimensional. So if you look at the solar system, we always get these diagrams from the top down. And that's actually a pretty fair representation. There's no real three dimensionality to the orbits of the planets. Except for Pluto, which orbits at some twenty odd degrees away from the rest of the planets. So yeah, its orbit is weird. And it's very it's not as round as the other orbit. At the orbits of the major planets. So it's, yeah, strange object.
2: So, why might that have happened? Because I guess the two dimensionality of all of the others mm. is an artifact of that, you know, giant cloud of dust that would have come from a star that would have once formed the planet. Exactly.
3: So, Pluto is part of a uh, solar system structure that we call the Kuiper Belt, which is sufficiently far away that it started to form down into smaller chunks but didn't continue. So it never cooled to the same degree as the rest of the solar system. So the rest of the solar system got quite flat. The Kuiper Belt stayed a little puffed up because it was sufficiently cold. And so within that Kuiper Belt, uh, there is more three-dimensionality. So it's more normal for an object that belongs to that cloud to have some slightly inclined orbit, whereas for a major planet, you wouldn't expect that. So Pluto's reasonably normal for the Kuiper Belt. It's abnormal as a, as a major planet.
2: Can we just talk about, I'm going to come back to Pluto in a moment, but um, while we're talking about the abnormality of its orbit, a couple of the planets, Venus and Uranus, mm. also have differences to the rest of the planets.
3: Yeah, the they, uh, they rotate the wrong way. So uh, Uranus rotates on its side, that's weird. So it rolls like a, a bead along a table, and Venus is upside down for unknown reasons, basically. The assumption is that they must have been hit very hard early in their life, and so while we expect most things to orbit in the same way, Everything else does, but those two objects must have been struck early enough and hard enough in their lifetime that they were tipped over, or in Venus's case, completely upside down.
2: Why would we assume all the other ones would spin in the same way?
3: So when you have a spinning cloud of dust and gas, it is going in one direction. And if you start to collapse it down a little bit further, you're going to spin it up. And since there is this net rotation in one direction to start with, you would expect them all to spin up in the same direction. So the rest of the planets seem to abide by this. Even Mercury, which is super close to the sun and extra strange for a number of other reasons, orbits consistently with the rest of the planets. And so anything that Jupiter does, most of the rest of the planets should be doing because Jupiter has most of the mass in the solar system that isn't in the sun. And everything lines up, but it's just from this condensation down into a smaller object, you're going to spin up a little bit more, and there's going to be a little bit of net rotation attached. So they should all do something consistent.
2: Just back to Pluto for a moment. When we first were able to get photographs of Pluto, all we saw were these very sort of like blurry images, and it's, you know, very far away and sort of out of sight and out of mind. And then we've had that whole, you know, unpleasantness where we've decided Pluto is no longer a planet and everything and... Everyone's embarrassed about that. And then uh, New Horizons, the, the probe, just recently been and visited Pluto, taken some amazing photographs of it. So what have we seen?
3: Pluto's amazing. So Pluto has an atmosphere, which is weird. Pluto has very varied terrain, uh, which is weird. Not very many craters, which is super weird. Mountain ranges that are extremely tall, made out of water ice which is also strange. And it's just an incredibly photogenic little object out there, and we would never have known about that if we hadn't sent out New Horizons. So the the turnover between how much we knew about Pluto was extremely rapid. Basically, as soon as we started seeing images come back from New Horizons, it's like, oh, okay, that's what it's like there. But yeah, you have glaciers made out of nitrogen ice. On the surface of Pluto, which is still somehow geologically active, to erase all the craters that it must have had—that's weird. I don't think we understand that. We certainly weren't expecting it.
2: And one of the other things you just mentioned that is weird is its atmosphere. And if you look at the photos that were taken, it looks like there are these sort of photographic artifacts on the photo. They're like there's like stripes. Yeah, so that's actually there.
3: That is real. So it is um, bits of gas that is evaporating a little bit away from the surface, reaching some point above the surface and stopping. And then they sort of stack up, and then they'll rain back down a little. They'll stack up. And so you get these bands of gas surrounding Pluto in a way that was really unexpected. We didn't think it was going to have an atmosphere. As soon as we saw it had an atmosphere, it's like, well, that would be what that atmosphere would do. But it's really cool that we managed to capture it.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month.
2: City Little Atoms. Today I'm talking to Dr Gillian Scudder and we're talking about her book Astroquizzical, A Curious Journey Through Our Cosmic Family Tree. And Gillian, we're going to move on to stars and to begin with our own sun. But before we do that, some of the planets we've not mentioned, Jupiter, Neptune, Saturn, we did mention Uranus, um, are gas giants. We call them gas giants and indeed they're Enormous balls of gas rather than rocky planets. Yes. As sort of uh, stars, are the gas giants basically rubbish stars?
3: Well, so the boundary between large versions of Jupiter and very rubbish stars is a fuzzy one. If you keep adding mass to Jupiter type objects, at some point you start calling them a star. And that boundary is where you start fusing hydrogen into helium in the centers. Jupiter is uh, warm, so in that regard, if you wanted to call it a rubbish star, you could. But the boundary is usually set much higher at something like oh, I can't remember. I think it's thirty times the mass of Jupiter or so. But it's kind of a a weird boundary. Kind of depends if it's orbiting a larger object that is definitely a star, or if it's just out on its own.
2: But you do get sort of binary star systems.
3: Yeah. Yeah, so in that case, we got one good star and one either really ginormous Jupiter or uh, a crap second star. It's kind of hard to say what it is, whether it should be classed as a star or as a as a planet. And there's
2: one other thing actually. We, one other thing we haven't mentioned before we move on to stars. and I want one other thing about the um, the solar system. That I want to talk about, and this is the thought experiment that you do in mm. that, in that section of one of them. There's a number of them, but you talk about this phenomena, a posited idea called panspermia. Yes. Um, Let's talk about that for a minute. What is that? I've talked about that on this show before, but I find Uh, it exciting.
3: So the idea is that if life arises in one place in the solar system, and then you bash that place with enough rocks, you might fling some rocks off of that place and send them careening around the solar system to smash into another place, thus bringing, if your life survives, your life to a new place in the solar system. So this is... Yeah, a very hypothetical idea. Uh, It's not clear how well most microbial life survives in space. Uh, In general, the answer is it doesn't particularly well, unless it is particularly hardy. But it's possible that if you blow a large enough chunk of planet into space, that the innermost portions of that, if they are inhabited, might be protected from radiation from the sun. It's plausible. I don't think it's how we think we got life on Earth. And insofar as we have been able to check, we haven't seen any hints of life from Earth going anywhere else. But yeah, that's the idea, is that you can cause life to occur in one place and then fling it all over your solar system so that it gets everywhere else.
2: And one of the things that's sort of given vague credence to this idea is the number of places on Earth that we find bacteria or life, whether that's in Antarctica or in deep sea hydrothermal vents or in sulfuric acid or whatever, you know, the life... I can go and so one of the other ideas which is sort of crazy but also fun is this idea that like You might find life of some sort around, you know, Jupiter or Saturn up in the cloud.
3: So the the presence of life pretty much everywhere on our planet, even in places we didn't think we needed to check because it seemed so inhospitable that nothing could possibly live there. It does mean that you have to be quite careful when you're starting to go out and explore these places because you don't want to accidentally kill off all the bacteria that might be living there if such bacteria did live.
2: Well, you don't want that killing you as well. I also
3: don't want it killing me, but I'm probably personally not going out. So for the moment, the bigger concern is not contaminating those places. Sample return missions are quite rare. So yeah, I'm not so worried about it killing me so much as I'm worried about me killing it. But yeah, atmospheres are an interesting place to put bacteria. They seem to be able to survive in our atmosphere for a reasonably long time, uh, which was one of those places we didn't think we needed to check. So there are places like Venus's atmosphere, uh, where there's a there's a zone of not death, where plausibly maybe if you had some really tiny suspended bacteria, it might be able to live there for a period of time. Jupiter is hard. It's captured a lot of science fiction writers, but um, it's a really inhospitable place unless you go a little further out, because Jupiter has such intense radiation fields surrounding it that it's probably not great for life unless you want it to be super cancerous or something but yeah there are some places out in the solar system where if you put some bacteria there it's plausible that it could survive for time but these are these are weird i think we're gonna be much better off looking in places that are more like hospitable places on earth so the oceans of europa and enceladus are probably a better place to check if you want to find life
2: I guess that brings us to the exoplanets that are outside of our solar system. We've been talking about our own solar system at the moment. But mm. The idea of looking for planets, this is always something people have obviously hypothesized that there would be planets around other stars. There are so many stars. And then, of course, with the, um, the, the Kepler satellite mission, these are just racking up like hundreds of exoplanets now. Tell us about how, how it finds them.
3: So Kepler looks for very, very small flickers in the amount of light that is reaching us from a distant star. The presence of those flickers, if they happen regularly enough, tells us that something is passing in front of that star. And if it happens regularly, that means that whatever it is is around that star and not close to us. And so you can infer from that the size and the length of time it takes for that object to go around the star, which tells you the size and the orbit of the planet going around that particular star. So for Kepler, it's able to observe many thousands of stars at once. So it's a very efficient machine that hunts for planets, and it has found a lot of planets around these stars.
2: So let's move on to stars. I've been threatening for a while <laughs> to stars that keep, keep staying within our own so listen, I wanted to talk particularly about the colour of stars and what that means and the relation of its colour uh, to its size, its brightness, its heat, all of those things, how they all relate to each other.
3: Okay. So colour is one of these fundamental observables. It's quite easy to look at a star and check its colour. The most basic thing that it's related to is its temperature. And this is a thing we're we're reasonably comfortable with. You know, You, you heat something up and it starts to glow. You heat it up further, it goes from red to yellow to white. If you keep heating it up, you get to blue. And so you have the same things happening on the surface of a star. So your dimmest and uh, least hot stars are this dark red color. And as you go up in temperature, you get a star that is increasingly white and then all the way up to blue. How do you get those higher temperatures? Well, in that case, you need to have a lot of mass because you need to be burning through your hydrogen very, very quickly in order to produce that much heat. And so you need a large amount of mass to trigger rapid uh, hydrogen burning. So you go from a blue star to, well, that blue star is very hot. The temperature there is quite hot. And then from there you go, well, actually, all of those blue stars have to be very massive, And so then you go, okay, well, now I know a whole bunch of stuff about this star. I know that it has to be extremely massive. I know that it's got a very high surface temperature. It's glowing very hot blue. And then from that, I can guess how long it's going to live. So given that it only has a certain amount of mass, and it's burning through its material very quickly, say, well, it's going through that way too fast to be sustainable. And so it's going to burn out in 100 million years, which is a lot shorter than it would take our sun to burn out, because our sun has a much more sedate Burning timescale, and so it's not going through its hydrogen quite as quickly.
2: And our sun is sort of pretty much in the middle of that. Yeah, our scale sun is size and temperature and everything. Our
3: it? sun is pretty average, or at least we've defined it to be average. <laughs> but it is—it does seem to be quite in the middle of uh, of the distribution. So we're we're in a in a weirdly boring part of the star uh, chart.
2: Staying with the color for the minute, I want to. And we'll come on to really really big stars in a while, but. Smaller stars as well, so there's a there's a whole set of stars that are described as dwarfs. Yes, but we have red dwarfs, brown dwarfs, white dwarfs. What are the difference?
3: So a red dwarf is a crap star. It's very very faint. It's very very cool on the spectrum of stars. It's not burning hydrogen very well, so it's going through its material very slow, and it's going to stick around for ages and ages and ages. But it's gonna stick around burning hydrogen very, very slowly. Brown dwarfs are even more crop stars in that they are warm, but don't seem to be burning hydrogen. So this is where you're sort of like, well, is that really a large version of Jupiter just hanging out in empty space, or is that a brown dwarf? So that one is sort of context dependent. White dwarfs are what happens when you explode a medium to large star. Not a very large star, but medium to large. So you let a star like our sun evolve, runs out of hydrogen gas in the center, and then it will create a planetary nebula, shrug off the outer layers of its star, and then the very dense core of the the sun, which uh, can't burn anything further anymore, remains as a white dwarf in the center of what used to be a star like our sun. So that is a super hot, very dense object. It isn't doing anything except... Those two things, and it's just going to sit there and radiate heat for the rest of the lifetime of the universe.
2: You mentioned with the red dwarf that for a star, relatively, you know, it's burning, but it's not as hot as you know a good star. Yes, um, but obviously it's still a star, and so it would not do as much good to go, you know, to go anywhere near it. It's yeah, weird. don't put your hand in it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> However, you mentioned in the book, and this is insane, that there are brown dwarfs out there. You describe one as probably around the temperature of a cup of coffee.
3: Yes. Is that
2: really true?
3: Yeah, it's one of the coolest known. But yes, it is on a temperature scale that is sort of a, a medium drinkable cup of coffee.
2: So what would that star actually, you know, if we could go and visit that star somewhere, millions of light years away, find one and, you know, orbit it and look at it, you know, and compared to our sun, which is this, you know, roiling mass of plasma. Hmm. um, What would this brown dwarf star that's the temperature of a cup of coffee actually look like?
3: It would be probably an eye-bendingly distressing color of deep purple. So, you know this color that you get to and it's not quite black anymore, but your eyes are trying to decide whether they should use their black and white receptors or their color receptors. It would be really deep color. It would not be great for you to stand there unprotected because it's still going to be producing a lot of heat and you can get sunburns that way quite quickly. But it might have some clouds instead of looking like a boiling pot of water like our sun does. uh, It's unclear what those clouds would be doing if there would be some kind of really bizarre precipitation on that surface. It's possible. Yeah, it would be a weird thing to look at. I mean, they would be fascinating, but it would be kind of underwhelming because they're really not that bright. I mean, if you got close enough to it, you would feel something because it was it's still hot. So much in the same way that you can put your hand over your cup of coffee and tell whether you should stick your tongue in it yet or not. But you would probably not see this blaze of light from it the way you see it from our star.
2: Really, really big stars then next. So... Stars tend to get really massive as we're moving into the next section of the book when they're sort of heading towards the end of their life. Yes. Describe, is it UY Scooty Scootie? Yes. This? Tell us about that star.
3: It's the biggest one we know of. So if you put it in the center of our solar system, it would consume all of the rocky planets. <laughs> it is uh, a hypergiant star, which is astronomers naming things as a giant supergiant and then running out of names and going well this one is in a class of its own so let's call it a hypergiant and it is towards the end of its life so this is a star that is running out of stuff to do in its core so it's not really burning hydrogen into helium anymore and as a result the pressure from the inside of the star is overcoming the gravitational pull and so it's expanding this particular star is many hundreds of times more massive than ours, uh, but it's thousands of times bigger than ours. So it's an extremely puffy star, and as a result of puffing up, its surface has cooled. And so now we're back in a regime of, well, it's red, its surface is cold, but we're no longer tracing mass in the same way because we're in this unusual part of a star's lifetime. So
2: what will happen?
3: Uh, To this particular star, it should explode. So it will probably supernova, uh, which is an explosion so catastrophic, it will outshine the galaxy temporarily. And it will release a lot of heavy elements back into the gas that surrounds it, which will allow for more iron to be present in that part of the sky, more carbon, more oxygen, all these things that we need to be alive and released back into into the gas around it. And then the galaxy will go back to normal, shining the normal amount.
2: Moving up to the galaxy scale now, our next galaxy, the one we can see, Andromeda, which is our sort of like twin galaxy, and perhaps we could talk in a moment about galaxies that have been sort of seen colliding. Yes. Colliding being perhaps too dramatic. It's word. not that
3: much cool. overly dramatic.
2: <laughs> but Andromeda, our twin, the one we can, you know, we can see with the naked eye, how far away is it?
3: 2.5 million light years. But uh,
2: So if we were looking back from Andromeda back towards Earth yes. in this impossible way that we decided in the first part that we can't do, but let's yes. just say hypothetically that we can, we would basically be seeing the earliest sort of hominids on the Earth.
3: Yes. Yeah. So if there is anyone in Andromeda that happens to be looking our way and has the capacity somehow to see our planet Earth in amongst all the light from the stars, yes. We are at the early hominid stage of uh, civilization development, i.e., really early.
2: We can see that famous Hubble Deep Field image that shows, like, you know, hundreds of hundreds of galaxies, and these galaxies are often. Why are they all different shapes? Or, or I say all, they're all different shapes, but there are common shapes mm. within that grouping. So, like, how do the how do galaxies form?
3: Well, we think that they form very early in the universe. Um, and it seems that the easiest way for them to form is into some kind of irregular, kind of lumpy, disky kind of shape. So it's a very large analog to the way that solar systems form. So you have some gas, some dust, some other stuff that comes together, collapses down into some kind of pancake-ish shape, and then it's going to sit there and form stars for a while. And as it is going to... It's going to run out of... of gas over time because it's forming stars out of those out of that gas and eventually you can create a much thinner less clumpy disk-like object so that's one class of galaxy the other class of galaxy are these reddish orangey f- football-shaped round things which we very inventively called elliptical galaxies because they're elliptical shaped and They are weird because in the early universe, there's much less gas there. They're not forming so many stars. The stars themselves are on random orbits. And so we think that these are probably created when you smash enough galaxies together. And the galaxies that you're smashing together are either going to be these clumpy disk-like galaxies or the less clumpy disk-like galaxies or another elliptical galaxy. So if you throw two things together enough, then you'll scramble the orbits of all of the stars and make this roundish object, and you will stop the formation of stars for some reason, and you'll be left with basically two populations. You've got the disc-lumpy stuff in the deep field, which you see quite a lot of, and then you've got these fuzzy round objects, which is the other half.
2: Now you've described smashing galaxies together there, and and you picked me up when I said that uh, the collision of galaxies was not perhaps quite as exciting as that. But this is a thing that's happening on an extremely slow scale. Oh, yeah.
3: This is a billion year timescale kind of thing. Several billions of years between start and finish.
2: So, what happens when two galaxies meet?
3: So, in general, they don't meet face to face. So, they will swing past each other on some kind of oblique course. Uh, And then the gravity between them will start to shear galaxies, or shear the gas and shear the stars away from whatever its original shape was. If the galaxies are moving fast enough, they'll just keep going, and that's the end of that. So you've sort of distorted your galaxy a little bit, you've silly puttied it out into a longer string, and then they just keep going, and they will never the twain shall meet again. If they're moving slower, then after that first encounter, they'll come back for more, and you'll keep doing this, and the galaxies will slow down and slow down and slow down until they create one single much larger object as the sum of the two so
2: we're coming towards the end of the book and we've started on earth and we've traveled the distance of our solar system and you talk in the book about you know the voyager probes and voyager is you know only just a few years ago left gone into interstellar space so that's you know taken 30 years to traverse our solar system And we've mentioned the fact that, you know, the Andromeda galaxy is a couple of million light years away. Um, But we can see this picture of thousands and thousands of millions of other galaxies out there in the universe. And so to the universal scale, how do you even begin to contemplate that there on things on a universal scale
3: like that? with many years of training. <laughs> I like it because I like this idea that we can understand these really huge scales. They are difficult to wrap your head around, especially because the most distant and large, distant, well, the most distant galaxies are also the furthest back in time. So you can't disentangle these two things. But can
2: we even see these things is the other is the you know, the other thing to say that how do we even know so there is, a, there is such a thing as an observable universe. Yes. And so time itself has not even you know, reached, light itself has not reached the end of the universe.
3: So, yes, we're, we're stuck with the part of the universe that we can observe. Um, so we are seeing things as they were when the light left those objects and happened to travel in our direction. That said, there's no reason to expect that we're in a special place. So anyone else's observable universe will look a little different, but on broad strokes the same as ours. So if we move over to the Andromeda Galaxy, someone there should see pretty much exactly the same observable universe as me, but shifted by a couple million light years. So the next galaxy over should see pretty much the same thing, and the next galaxy over, and the next galaxy over. And at no point do we think that you shouldn't see, by and large, the same universe. So that's telling us that I don't know that there should be an edge. Because at some point, if you're close to the edge, you're going to see a different universe than the Mm. one that I see. But if we're not in a special place, then everyone should see the same universe. So you just keep going out and out to the next galaxy and the next galaxy and the next galaxy and the next galaxy and everyone's seeing the same thing. Slightly different portions, but the same universe. And
2: that's a rather mind-bending point for us to finish on. I've been talking to Dr Gillian Scudder, we have been talking about her book Astroquizzical, A Curious Journey Through Our Cosmic Family Tree, which is out in the UK from Icon. Gillian, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with us.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up. And the podcast is hosted by ACAST. Find us on iTunes. And if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism, and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well...